I believe this is one of the most important messages because, at least for me, this was life-changing. And I am an enigma to many people because I love the law of God. But I also love the fact that I am a saint in Christ. And those two things don't seem to jive for many people because I think typically, as we've said many times, they just don't understand the law. And so, because they have the law as a list of do's and don'ts rather than, you know, looking for Yeshua in it, they just can't quite make sense of this. But most of my life, I grew up, I think, very legalistic in a very grace-oriented church, but very legalistic because... I wanted to serve God, I wanted to do what was right, but I couldn't. And I grew up all my life saying I am a poor, miserable sinner. I confess my sins and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's good. I I still think that we should confess our sins. I'm not saying that. However, if we dwell in our sinfulness, it is going to destroy you. Because, first of all, you're never going to love Jesus as much as you should. And we'll talk about that as we go. One of the things that you need to understand is that I really am no longer a sinner. And that can really rub people wrong, but the bottom line is, I am not a sinner noun. I am a sinner verb. I will commit sins, but I am not a sinner as a noun. That's not who I am. I, according to the word of God, am a saint. According to the word, I'm a sheep, not a goat. You see, you can't be both. You can't be a sinner noun and a saint noun at the same time. Because when God comes, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. So you can't be a sheep and a goat. You have to be one or the other. God has made us sheep or saints that sometimes act like goats, or saints that sin. And I hope that just the noun-verb aspect of that makes sense, because uh, that's the, the foundation of all of this. Paul, look at what Paul said here. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. If I was going to make a play and the kids were going to kind of act this verse out, how many different characters do I need to have? You'd have to have one for Paul. Okay. And then you'd have to have one for sin. Because Paul's saying, if I sin, it's not me. I'm not the one doing this. This is sin living in me. It's like, well, what is that all about? How, how can sin be personified in that way. And we're going to touch on that. Another verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3. Now if we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Same thing here again, that there's a tent... And then there's me. 
And this is a vital thing to understand because sometimes I think we just look at ourselves as this is it, the, the whole picture. But what our bodies are, are simply a vessel in which you live. And sin is not going to dwell in you, it's going to dwell in the vessel or the tent that you live in. And so that's the difference. And these are verses that you can find other scriptures are going to back this up. But you have to start thinking differently. That there's the body and there is the spirit. In the soul. And the soul and the spirit are connected in ways that I'm not going to get into tonight. But what is inside our tent? John 15, verses 5 through 6 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. So, Again, I could find many, many scriptures here in the New Testament telling us that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Those prepositions are important to understand that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And because of that, I think there are a lot of people who never experienced the freedom of Christ because they don't understand these distinctions. They beat themselves up. They think, you know what? I'm never going to be good enough. This Christianity, it's too hard. You compare yourself to other Christians who seem to be walking closer to the Lord than you are, and you say, I just can't do it. I can't be like you. Well, you're right. You can't, but Christ in you can. And I can tell you one thing is you are not going to feel what truth is. So many times I would lose my temper, get angry, cuss and swear and, and act like the most ungodly person you can imagine. And then I would go and I would ask God to forgive me and I'd say, God, please forgive me. I didn't want to do it. I felt guilty. I felt bad. But do you know I never really felt forgiven. Matter of fact, I felt terrible. I would get in a depressed mood for sometimes three, four, five days afterwards because I blew up and lost my temper. And there was a part of me that would think, how can God love me? How can I be uh, forgiven when this is like the 50th time I've done this and I've gone to God 50 times saying I'm sorry. And here I am doing it again. And the last thing I would feel like is forgiven. The last thing I felt like was a saint. I felt like a pagan. I felt like there's no way I can be saved. There's no way, not, not with, the, with me continuing to lose my temper. What's wrong? Where is that spirit that was promised to live in me? And it's that kind of thing that kept me in bondage. Because what was I doing to measure my sainthood? Well, whether I blew up or not, whether I could be good enough or not, whether my temper could be under control, whether, uh, you know, I could obey. 
if that's what's going to have to make you feel like you're a Christian or saved or a saint, then you're never going to experience it. Because you can't. Feelings versus truth are very different. I don't feel like I'm in Christ. I don't feel like He's in me sometimes. But the Scriptures say He is. And this is one of the things that I think is very important when we go to worship at some churches and whatnot. We oftentimes have, you know, in worship we try to, we were talking about this the other night, conjure up the Holy Spirit. That it's like, come on, you know, we want the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come to me. And unless I feel a warm fuzzy, he's not there. That's your feeling. What's the truth say? Scripture says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and the Spirit lives in you. The Spirit is there whether you feel that warm fuzzy or not. He's there. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, He doesn't go and then you know come and go. He now dwells in the temple as we talked about here the other night. So, when we read in Colossians 3, 1 through 5, since then you have been raised with Christ. I bet you don't feel that way. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You see these two different things? The earthly nature, the flesh, versus the spirit. Your tent versus you who live in that tent. Because I got news for you, as I've said many times, if I'm walking down the street and a bus comes along and just wails me at 60 miles per hour, I'm still alive. My body might not be, my tent might be destroyed, but I am still alive. Whether that, you know, bus hits me is no consequence to me, only to my tent. Christ can have no sin in him. So if you are a goat, if you are a sinner noun, Christ cannot dwell in you. If you are a saint, then yes, Christ can dwell in you. And what scriptures are constantly saying is you are in Christ. Christ is in you, therefore you must be a saint. Now again, this message is only for believers. If you are not a believer, <coughs> this message does not apply to you. Until you are born again, this message doesn't apply. But look what it says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died so that your life is now hidden in Christ. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to that earthly nature. You know, Romans is also going to talk about this here in chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. 
so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The Bible's telling you, you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. The Bible says that your old self was crucified, that you died to put to death your, your earthly nature. That means that there is something in you that we are to put to death, that we are to live in the spirit, die to the flesh. And I don't understand all of this fully. All I know is that I've got a bad roommate. My tent is a bad roommate. But in my spirit, I want to serve God. I want to do what's right. And then sometimes sin living in me, that bad roommate in my tent, wins out. And I listen. My, I go with that versus what truth is. I go with my feelings versus what truth is. And this is why there is a, day, a daily aspect of us of having to put to death the earthly nature. And I think the best way to do that is to live in the spirit. Everything that we do should be spirit-led. Sometimes I feel like I put my spirit to bed and let my bad roommate take over by watching something on TV that maybe I shouldn't watch or, you know, just getting caught up in the world. Maybe it's it's getting caught up and excited about some worldly thing that will be fun and innocent, but fun. But my spirit's not in it. It's just that I'm distracted and I'm living for myself, storing up things in the barns of the world rather than storing up things in heaven. But the Bible says that our old nature is gone. And I think that that's another thing that we understand is a different, what is a nature, a sinful nature. NIV is really the main one that uses this word nature. In the Hebrew, or Greek rather, it is sarks, or, or it's flesh. So that we are, we don't have a sinful nature, we have a sinful flesh which explains why our body is what's to be put to death. Our body's hungry, we feed it. If it's thirsty, we give it something to drink. If it's tired, we put it to bed. If it doesn't want to do something, we get all upset. We don't want to do it. Because our flesh is in control. And the Bible is saying you need to put that to death. And the best way to do it is don't give your flesh what it desires. I think that's one of the benefits of fasting, is it's putting that flesh into submission to the spirit. You're hungry. Don't give it. Don't feed it. Ephesians 4.23 To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, we are now new creations in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. What's the old? That old nature that was crucified with Christ. He didn't leave it empty then. He now has caused his spirit to come and dwell in your spirit. So now you have a power to put that flesh into submission. So how can you be a saint? Colossians 2, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us. 
Notice the past tense verb here. That stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. We are saints because our sins have been forgiven. The law that once condemned can no longer condemn. When I lost my temper, got angry, (coughs) was there condemnation for me now? No. There is no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, there can still be consequences. When we choose to live in the flesh, there will be consequences on earth here, but it doesn't affect your sainthood if you are a saint. Bottom line is, we were all born with a birth certificate to hell. Every one of us. Until Christ makes us new, just being born means that you have a birth certificate for hell. Because you were born with a sinful flesh. And this is why it is vital for one to be born again. And that's something only Christ can do. You can't earn that. You can't make it happen. You can only seek God, and God does that. But once that happens, and you have been born again, when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner now, a goat. He sees a saint. He sees a child of God because of Jesus. Because sainthood is not performance-based, It's promise-based. It is grace-based. God defines a hypocrite pretty much this way. It's someone who pretends to be what they are not. I love the fact that, do you know that in Bible times, what a hypocrite was? Actors. The actors were called hypocrites because they would pretend to be somebody else. And so, in Bible times, that's the definition of a hypocrite. Not much has changed. If you look at actors, and this is kind of, and don't take this, take it with a grain of salt. But this is, sometimes I think I get a little concerned about acting, because sometimes I feel like we should never leave reality of who we are. And that acting, and being literally a hypocrite, sometimes can, I think, confuse the person. I'll leave it at that. Like I said, just take that with a grain of salt. It's just a thought that I've had. But oftentimes I think people pretend to be sinners when God says that they're a saint. What do I mean by that? You beat yourself up. I can't do this. Oh, man, this is the fifth time I've done it, whatever the case might be. Well, Satan is going to define a hypocrite as someone who acts contrary to the way they feel. Can you see the difference? You see, we don't act on feelings. We act on truth. If I feel like a sinner, I'm still going to act like a saint. 
I may not feel forgiven, but I'm going to claim it. One of the things, and, and by the way, where a lot of this is coming from is a book called What God Wishes Christians Knew About Christianity by Bill Gillum. And when I read that book, one of the things that I stopped doing was when we said the Lord's Prayer, I stopped saying it the way everybody else did. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? It goes on. And I remember, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I remember stopping one Sunday and going, whoa, I hope God does better than that. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive others? Whew, I hope he's better than me. And I remember thinking, you know what? That's a pre-cross prayer, by the way. And I began to pray, Lord, thank you for forgiving my sins and help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me. You see the difference? I no longer ask God, will you forgive me? Please forgive me. Pretty, pretty, please. I claim the truth of you have forgiven me because I know who I am in Christ. I am a saint and I know that you have wiped away my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. I may not feel forgiven, but I'm going to thank him anyway. And I think that's a very important distinction because as long as I was asking him, it's almost like I didn't know for sure because it's like, please, I'm going to do better. And I added a little performance-based aspect to my prayers, at least in my thoughts, because I wanted to be better. And if I could be a good Christian, then, you know, I'd stop doing these things. And I never could. Remember I've said many times the man who has been forgiven much, loves much. And it wasn't until this message came that I began to realize how much God had forgiven me. And I began to love him even more because of that. Rather than that feeling of, I'm I know that my doctrine says he's forgiven me, but I don't feel forgiven. And if you don't feel forgiven, how much are you going to love him? Not very much. Because the man who has been forgiven little, or thinks he's been forgiven little, is going to love little. And so it's, I think, extremely important for you to understand your sainthood for that alone. Job 31 Job said, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. Can you imagine me getting up and saying that? I'm blameless. I'll bet 99% of the people in the church would tar and feather me. My wife would not like me saying I'm blameless because she knows me better than any of you. But Job was able to say, I'm blameless. How can he do that? 2 Corinthians 8.4, they, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Look through the New Testament. How many times does Paul write to the saints and sinners in Ephesus? 
to the sinners in Rome. Not once. To the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Galatia, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome, to the saints, to the saints, to the saints, to the saints. And yet somehow we've got this idea that, nope, I'm a sinner and I'm a saint. This kind of paradox, sheep and goat. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And if you are a saint and a sinner, then you live in a house that is divided against itself. But if you are a saint living in a fleshly home, Jesus says you can overcome by the Spirit. And what that Spirit does is helps you to obey, helps you to, to experience the blessings of obedience. But you will not be able to obey if you're the one trying to do it. You will not be able to keep the Sabbath. You will not be able to honor your father, your father and mother. You will not be able to, you know, maybe even not lie and bear false testimony unless it is Christ in you, living through you, in your spirit. Ephesians 1, Christ chose us in Him before the creation of the world be holy and blameless in His sight. Christ chose us in Him. Again, I don't understand these things. All I know is there's 30 verses or better talking about us being in Christ. And all I have to do is my job is to believe it, proclaim it, even though I don't feel it or understand it. We were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we have been united, past tense, with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So, you were in him before creation, in him at Calvary, in him when he was hung, hanging on the cross, in him when he rose from the dead, and you are now in and with him as he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we truly believe and accept this truth, regardless of how you feel, that ought to make you get pretty excited. That ought to make us want to seek the Holy Spirit even more to understand. I don't, I'm tired of living in this flesh. I'm tired of going my day-to-day -day life doing what I want to do. I want to seek the Spirit. I want to hear from Him. I want to listen to Him. I want to follow Him. That's what we need to do. But how were we dead and again, I'm not going to get into this too much, but baptism fascinates me. Now, I know a lot of people think baptism is just a public declaration. Hey, you know, I'm a Christian. Let's get baptized. I don't believe that. I believe baptism, there is something very spiritual that goes on in baptism. It's not just me saying, hey, sign me up. There is something powerful 
And what Scripture says is what? We were therefore buried with him through baptism. In baptism, just as the symbol and the picture is, you're, you're basically buried, put under the water, you're, you're being killed. That there's something about that old nature that is killed in baptism. At least that's what I see Romans here saying. We were therefore buried with him. Now, if you're just baptized, you're still going to be dead. But it says, and you were raised to life. How? Through the glory of the Father. That we could have new life. In another verse it says, we were raised to him through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, baptism almost seems to kill you. But then when you have faith, because the old self has been dead, crucified... Now, the new self can live in the power of the Spirit, have faith, because I don't believe you can have faith unless God gives you that ability. You then can have faith, and through faith are raised to life with Christ and are now seated with Him. Again, don't understand all the details, how it works. I just know what Scripture says, and I'm going to claim it. I'm going to hang on to it. I'll tell you this, though. Christ lives in you. There's no question. The Bible says it over and over. But the bottom line is, it's kind of like a power tool here. This power tool, if it's not plugged in, is nothing but an expensive paperweight. doesn't do any good. But when you plug it into the power source, it accomplishes what it was designed to do. You guys are a tool that God has created. And unless you plug into the power source of the Holy Spirit, you will never be able to accomplish and do what you were designed to do. But by recognizing this truth, seeking to understand this truth, that Holy Spirit then can energize you, give you the power to obey, the power to do what Ephesians says. He chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. You can't be holy and blameless without plugging into the power source. Can you see why it's so important to have this understanding as well as the understanding of the law of God? Because if you have the law without understanding this, good luck. You can't do it. That old footprints poem. You know how it goes basically, I'm walking along and there were two footprints in the sand and then uh, you know, he's going through some trial and when the, he notices that every time that there was a, a trial in his life, there was only one footprint in the sand. And he says, God, why did you leave me every time I had these big trials in life? And he says, I didn't leave you. I was carrying you. Well, I, I like it still, but I want you to understand something. There should only be one footprint in the sand the entire trip. I don't ever want there to be two footprints in the sand where I'm walking on my own. I want 
God to be carrying me. I want to be plugged into that power source when I choose to watch whatever I'm going to watch on TV. When I choose to say no to the flesh for whatever it's screaming for. Sleep. Food. Maybe something that's not good for you. Maybe it's a cigarette. Maybe, um, you know, being disobedient to whoever. I don't want to. I don't want to obey. Put it to death. Habakkuk one eleven. Guilty men whose own strength is their god. Boy, I can tell you that I have let my own strength be my god many, many a time in life. Romans 5.10, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I love this verse because it's saying this, if when you were God's enemies, because you were a sinner, you did not know Christ, you did not have forgiveness, but then Jesus comes along and he dies on the cross and you have faith in him, he therefore reconciles you, makes you right with God, justifies you before his Father, so now you are saved. And I think most people are content. This kind of goes along with the tabernacle like we talk. Hey, they're in the outer court and they're content. But look what it says. How much more? There's so much more blessing if you get out of that outer court and go into the holy place and the most holy place. How much more, now that you are saved, can you have an abundant life through His life? Which the scripture keeps saying is in you. It's in you. It's in you. You have the power source. Use it. But we don't want to because we want our own strength. You want the abundant blessings and joy of Christianity? We have to die to self. And we have to be living life through our life, Jesus. Because I love that. How much more shall you be saved? Saved from what? From yourself. <laughs> you see, Jesus should never be our focal point. He's not that thing we just add to our day to day. He's not just something we just add to our Bible study. He is. He's not something you add to the law of God. He is the law of God. He is our entire life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. Again, I used to always kind of look at my life as a Latter-day Saint. Not the Mormon, L-A-T-T, L-A-D-D-E-R. As I said before, I thought, if I can just stop swearing, you know, those slipping out with the bad words, then I'll be a good Christian. And, you know, I, I started getting pretty good at that, where I didn't swear. I mean, it, every now and then, maybe, you know, something happened. And, but I, I really didn't swear much. But then I thought, if I can just get control of this temper, because, man, I'm losing my temper, you know, used to be on a weekly basis, and then it got to be a monthly basis, and then it got to be every other month, and, you know, whatever. 
But it was always like, there was always something else. If I can just get this, then I'll be a good Christian. And it was this latter day, you know, climbing up the ladder, getting rid of these sins in my life. And as I've said here before, as we've gone through other Bible studies, I realized, you know, I don't really have vices. I can stand before you and say, I am not watching pornography. I don't cuss and swear. I'm not getting drunk. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not, you know, all the big list of sins. I feel like I'm walking with Christ pretty well. So I feel like, hey, if I'm going to go on this Latter-day Saint thing, I'm doing pretty good. And then God showed me my heart. It's like, oh my goodness. Guys, there aren't enough rungs on a ladder to tell you how far I am from being able to be good enough. Because God began to reveal my heart to me. My, my heart for the flesh and not serving Him. I mean, you can go through life not sinning, but living for yourself. Living for what money can buy. You see, we change our heart in order to have our actions changed. I was trying to change my actions. If I stop doing this, then my heart will change. I'll be a good Christian. I'm going to know the Lord more. What has to happen is you need to change your heart first, and then those things start falling away. And that is why the law of God is so lovely and important. And the fear of God is so important. Because when you fear the Lord in your heart, it changes something in you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, the sinful flesh. So you're not controlled by it. You're controlled by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Again, you don't have to listen to the flesh. It's your choice. If you are a believer in Jesus, that Spirit is in you, and you can tap in and plug into that energy source. If you're not, then yeah, you're on your own, and I bet you're failing miserably. Maybe we need to repent. Get right with God. One of the greatest ways to practice what I'm telling you right now is what Bill Gillum called this green highway. You know, if you have a, a road and you don't drive on it, the grass starts building up. You drive on it every now and then. You might see the path, but if you don't drive on it, then pretty soon you can't even see where the path is anymore. That's the way our brain waves work, our brain patterns. Maybe you learned a foreign language. It was there. You were using it on a day-to-day -day basis as you went to school and whatnot, and it was there pretty well. And then you, you started not having Spanish class anymore, and then you could still see it. There, the path was there, but you had to think about it before you could pull it up. And then... You never went to Spanish class for four years, and you could hardly pull up you know, a few words because the path was not traveled on. The brain wave, the brain path, was not used very much. Same thing with math. You know, I, I did 
I did fine in math. And then I went out to student teach. I was student teaching in fifth grade. I thought, I can do fifth grade math. And I remember getting up to try and teach this. And it's like, whoa, I forgot. How, how, how do you multiply fractions and add fractions? I, I, I absolutely forgot. Because I went through all my high school and college years without really having to do fifth grade math again. And it was gone. The weeds grew up. The same is true with our walk with God. Let me give you a practical example. One of the th sins that I did struggle with, it may not have been pornography and in um, magazines or TV or media or anything like that, but just lust of women. I, I mean, you notice a pretty girl all the time. Go to the grocery store. There's a pretty girl down there. Oh, there's another one over there. Oh, she's pretty hot. You know, whatever. You'd be noticing all these girls. Now, it wasn't like I was, you know, trying to go ask them out on a date or anything, but my eyes. And I, and I was so convicted by a verse in Job where Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. Because I'll tell you what, the Bible says to even look lustfully upon a woman you commit adultery with her in your heart. So even seeing these pretty girls, and, you know, I'd have all these guys that would say, oh, it's just eye candy, you know, as long as you, you know, not do anything, it's just eye candy. That is a lie. It is sin. It is adultery, according to Scripture. And we should not have our eyes wandering, even at pretty girls. Now, by the way, women, that means you ought to not dress so scantily and provocative as well. Okay? You don't have to be ugly, but you don't have to flaunt what God gave you either. And not only have to, you shouldn't. You should... Well, I'll leave it at that. Bottom line. I put this into practice. And it's so funny because... When you're always doing that and you're noticing a pretty girl here and a pretty girl there and a pretty girl here, and for you got girls, maybe you know, handsome men, I don't know. But it took nothing for me to recognize it. I could see some long hair back there and go, ooh. And then you're just waiting for her to turn around to see, is she pretty or is she not? Just long hair. There were a few times that came back to bite me. Oh, it's a dude. Oh, oh. Okay. Seriously, I'm not joking. Thanks, Matt. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the point being is, it took very little for that pathway in my brain to be stimulated. It was so well-traveled. Just even in the corner of my eye, long hair or whatever, boom, there it is. Because the pathway was traveled on constantly. And so I began to put this into practice. I, when I first read this book, probably 25 years ago, I began to practice this, and I'm telling you, it worked great. I'd be at Walmart. Really good-looking girl checking you out here. Not such a good-looking one checking me out over here. I have a choice. I'm going to go to this one or I'm going to go to that one. And I would say, I'm not going down this checkout aisle. I'm going down this checkout aisle. Yeah, I know. I'm saying, yeah, clarify. Oh, 
not yeah. checking you out. Yeah, um, I'm going to let her check me out. <laughs> I was like, why wow, you got a lot of people checking you out? Yeah. <laughs> so I would do that. Or if I would see a, a girl and my eyes, I would, in, I would make a choice. And I would say, I'm not even going to look at her. I don't care if she's pretty. I don't need to know if she's pretty. I'm not even going to look at her. Do you know, even in a week or two weeks' time of putting that into practice, I didn't notice. There was no peripheral vision. Oh, oh, I wonder. No, it, it just, just didn't dawn on me. Because the weeds would start to grow up. And this is just one of many different sins and many different examples that I think that we can apply to our life. And here's what Scripture says, and I think it's coming up here somewhere, but I'll do this one first. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One of the ways we can live in the spirit and not in the flesh is to resist the devil and all the temptations that he's taking and putting before you. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In other words, every sin you can demolish. How? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There was a thought. Pretty girl. Sound like a parrot. Pretty girl. Take it captive. Nope. I have a thought. The devil wants me to go down this road. I will not. And I take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I didn't just take the thought captive looking for bad things all the time. That's the important thing is now to the obedience of Christ. Replace that thought with truth. Lord, I will set no vile thing before my eyes. Lord, I want to make a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a woman. I replaced it with God's word instead of just a worldly thought. And then you know what starts happening? That pathway to God's word is getting traveled on. And so the weeds that were on that are starting to get beat down while the weeds that weren't here are starting to grow up. And I am telling you that this Putting this one thing, this verse right here, 2 Corinthians 10.5, into practice was revolutionary in my life. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Man, I, I really want to go up for fourths on this stake. No, God says gluttony is wrong. Don't. Yeah. I'm not joking on that fourth. Golden Corral, folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on how much you had on the first and second. But the point being is, resist the temptation, replace it with the truth of God's word, and you're going to see that those sins in your life are going to start to dwindle. You lose your temper... Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I reject that. Lord, I'm sorry, but you know what? Thank you that you have forgiven me. I am going to exercise my, the, the truth of forgiveness, the truth of my sainthood. Let those weeds of you being no good, not worth anything, not loved, 
Let those weeds get trampled down by the truth. Every single time you have those thoughts, every time, take them captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, 1 Timothy 4 says, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Just like your muscles need physical exercise to keep in shape, so does your spirit. So does your mind to exercise it to take every thought captive. And it says this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. It won't be easy. I'll tell you what, there were days that I would go to Walmart or wherever and I would have to take that thought captive of lustful thoughts 50 times. You know, they say that a man has a lustful thought 300 times a day. <laughs> Sometimes it would be going and seeing the same girl in different aisles. But the point being is, a man has a lustful thought, they say, I don't know how they know this, but I've asked people around a lot, up to 300 times a day. I would say that was probably pretty realistic for me when I was in high school and college. 300 times, girls, did you hear that? A day. You need to know that. You need to know how much of a pig men are. I'm not joking. When I was in high school, the locker room talk was despicable. It was awful. All we ever talked about was girls. And we didn't talk about them with respect. This is who I was. And those paths were so well-traveled. Again, you need to dress decently and realize that. And I, words cannot, I would try to instill in my girls. I don't think you women can understand it. I don't think you're capable of understanding what's in the mind of a man. I don't think you're capable of it. You weren't wired that way. But it's the honest truth. So, does the law motivate us to do good? No. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that once one died for all, and therefore all died. So, the law, you know how you, sometimes people get shamed because maybe they're overweight, and it's like, you know, you, you try to shame them to diet. Does that ever work? Never. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's, it's the same thing with being a sinner. Oh, I hate that. I want to do better. Shaming yourself can't work. It has to be a love for Christ and a love for His Word that is going to cause you to be obedient. So, there's a lot that we could talk about on this, but... Again, John 15, there's so many verses. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, apart from being plugged into him, you can do nothing. You need to know that Holy Spirit. 
And if you're living your life day to day in the flesh, then maybe there are some choices that you need to make to seek out the Holy Spirit. I'm going to skip a lot of these here for now. You know, we know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and whatnot. Okay, you guys know what I believe about the law of God. The law does not control me. I love the law. I love it dearly. But it is not what controls me. Okay, Paul says, though I myself am not under the law, but yet Paul even recognized that the law was good as long as you use it properly. We have talked about that enough to where I'm not going to go through this in these verses here tonight. But um, trying to save a little bit of time here. I've talked about some of these. I'm going to skip that too. Romans 7, 4 through 5. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit to God. Kind of in essence talk about communion here, the importance of communion. I've mentioned it before, but the blood brought forgiveness, but the body brought what? A dying to the law. A dying to to condemnation to that law, shaming you into trying to do what's right. It won't. It doesn't work. You need to have a love for God, a fear of God, a desire for Him, and an understanding of that law. Um, just know that we are the temple. We've talked about that the other night too. And that is in, you know, where Christ lives. And so I'm not going to get into that either, but um, there's a reason that when we die, you don't get a new spirit. You get a new body. Why? Because the body is in which sin lives. You see, the body is a corruptible tent. The body is that bad roommate. The flesh is that bad roommate. And when we die, that's going to be raised new, and that roommate will be gone forever and ever and ever. Just a, another aspect to, to show you that. Um, I don't know if I've skipped this slide here or not. I don't want you to think that we don't need to repent of our sins. I think that's a danger of understanding this truth. Don't let the pendulum go too far the other direction. Repentance, Schofield said, is not an act of, uh, separate from faith. But saving faith implies a change of mind, which is called repentance. Repentance is mandatory for regeneration. You have to recognize you are a sinner before you will be forgiven. So I think that you understand that, but I just feel a need to you know, talk about that a little bit. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
um, f- from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Things like that. Sin, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And we went through that when we, I think, went through the book of Hebrews, we talked about this. But for now, I just want you to understand, sin is a power. It's a spiritual force. Satan, the flesh, all of these things wanting you to do it. But again, when we look in Genesis 4, it says, if you do what is right, this is when God is going and speaking to uh, Cain. Cain had killed Abel, right? He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, and he desires to have you, some translations have it. But you must master it. Sin is almost personified in the sense that sin, okay, if you do what's right, if you make a choice to follow God, follow his word, then that spirit is there to, you know, carry you along. But if you do not do what is right, if you make a choice to disobey, sin is right there, crouching, waiting to pounce, waiting to take you further down a road of darkness, waiting to devour you because it desires to have you. And so what I want you to see is that sin gives thoughts. Sin was there to give Cain ideas, to make you think that your thoughts were your own. And this is another final important part of this. As I said, sin lives in your body. Um, I want to show you the old man here. Remember the old self was crucified. 2 Peter 1.4 says, Through this he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God has given you the ability to participate in what? The divine nature. Okay? That's important. Not a sinful nature, a divine nature. We read in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, my sinful flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. So can you see how you have two natures? A divine nature and a sin-filled nature? Well, Satan wants you to think that every time you have a thought, like, oh, pretty girl, that that is your thought. I'm going to tell you that not every thought is your own and that oftentimes that is the devil putting in there. He is baiting the trap trying to get you to go down that road of darkness. Because sin is crouching at the door and he desires to have you. And so he is waiting to plant an idea in your head. For sin, noun, shall not be your master, it says in Romans 6, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, verb, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. 
In Romans 5 through 8, sin appears 41 different times. Only one time of those 41 does it appear as a verb. All the rest, it's a noun. That ought to tell you sin is crouching at the door, waiting to devour you, that there is a power behind this. Look what James 1 says. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, that means your own flesh, he's dragged away and enticed by what? Well, the power of sin. That's what's dragging you away. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Notice it's not sin right away. Sometimes I believe Satan puts that idea in your head. Oh, pretty girl. I can reject that thought. There's no sin there. I have rejected the power of sin, chose to follow the divine nature, and therefore desire does not conceive. It does not give birth to sin. Because if it does, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. Sin offers your flesh these ideas. And I'm going to kind of show you this in Scripture here in just a second. Romans 7, 23. I see another law at work in the members of my body. Paul has just got done saying, I hate the evil I do. The good that I want to do, I do not do. That which I hate, I keep on doing. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he goes on and he says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Here's what I want you to see. He has a mind and he has a body. He has a flesh and he has a spirit. There is a law at work in your body. The flesh is waging war against your mind. Making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. Now, here's the important part. Where does sin live? In your body. And so that sin is waging war against your thinking. Your mind. Why? Well, what does 1 Corinthians 2.16 say? We have the mind of Christ. Your mind is where the spirit dwells. Your mind is the mind of Christ. It is that divine nature. So no wonder the body is waging war against the mind. Because these are the two that are battling each other here. The mind and the flesh. And so therefore, your mind wants to obey God, but sin in your body isn't doing it. Therefore, you need to put to death the flesh. Stop giving it everything you want. This is why fasting is so important, as I said before. I think all of us would benefit to start not giving the flesh what it wants, because we need to weaken it to strengthen the mind the spirit it's not good guy versus bad guy it's good you versus the power of sin in you 
We often say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, 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 not necessarily. There's a power of sin in your flesh. But you are connected and can have that power source to the spirit in the mind to battle, to wage war, and to win. And that is how we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. <coughs> we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So, sin cannot control you if you have the mind of Christ. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but you are controlled by the Spirit. That is, if the Spirit of God lives in you. But to say that you have a sinful nature right now, a sinful flesh that is controlling you, is, it's, it's just not right. A pig's nature is to wallow in the mud. They can't help themselves. It's what they do. You are not controlled by that. You don't have to wallow in the mud. Because you have a divine nature. So important to understand that. Yep. And we can choose to do that by being in his word, by praying, by seeking him, by saying no to sin. There's so many things. And that's kind of this. Don't just look for the evil. Okay, I'm not going to look at girls. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to do this. Set your mind on things above. Okay? The more we think godly things, the more that the ungodly stick out like a sore thumb. You don't have to look for them. They'll be everywhere. Chase after God. And this is what I tell people all the time with this Hebrew root kind of stuff. I see people get into it and then everything, oh, this is pagan, oh, that's pagan, oh, this is pagan. And all they do is spend all of their time looking for the evils rather than just run to Jesus. Look at Jesus in the festivals. Look at Jesus in the law. Look at Jesus here. Look at Jesus there. Then these things, they just fade away. Don't look for the evil. Set your mind, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the key. Okay, then those evils will just stand out. No big deal. <coughs> like I said, you're, it's a pig's nature to wallow in the mud, but not yours, because you have a divine nature now. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Okay, count your flesh dead, but, but uh, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body in your flesh, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. How? Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't let sin be your master. Let your divine nature, let the God's word be your master. So, putting it into practice. I want to show you, Jesus' ministry when he first came was under the law. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those. Remember Matthew 5, all of the, you know, blessed are, blessed are you if you do this, blessed, blessed, blessed. And we see that's almost like a gospel sermon. It's not. Matthew 5 was under the law intended to break people. I mean, if you would have been there in Matthew 5, listening to that sermon on the mount, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers... Or here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay? 
you might think, oh, that, that sounds nice, but what if you don't thirst enough? How about this? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What if you don't show mercy to others? What if you're holding a grudge? Well, then you're not going to be shown mercy. You see how, boy, I better hope I have enough to receive enough. <coughs> but look what he says after the cross. <clears throat> Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you have to be merciful to get mercy here now? Uh-uh. How about, blessed are the peacemakers here in Matthew, for they will be called sons of God. What if you're not a peacemaker? I guess you're not going to be called sons of God. After the cross, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, it wasn't me being a peacemaker that made me a son of God. It was my faith in Yeshua. And there are all kinds of examples like this. That he ends the thing by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now you tell me that would have made you go home feeling really good about yourself? Not a chance. You see, he was telling you, you need something else. You need me. He was sending them home so that they would be so thirsty for the gospel that when he died on the cross, they'd say, that's what I need. Give it to me. So, Matthew 5 goes on to say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. The only way you can do that is by plugging into the power source so that you can say, as Job said, I'm blameless. It's no longer I who sin. It's sin living in me that does it. I claim the cross. I claim Yeshua. I claim the divine nature. Okay? Colossians 1.28 We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So, I'm going to close with that. We'll close in prayer. And hopefully that gives you some practical application. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our life. Thank you for being in us and that we can be in you. We may not understand how all of this works, Lord, but I'm claiming the promises and I'm standing on them till the day I die. And I just pray that you would help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that we might live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us through being plugged into the vine, plugged into your power. Lord, teach us your uh, to, to understand your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit fill us in ways that we never even could understand or dream of before, that we would be able to, to not live according to the flesh, but live according to that Spirit, not be controlled by the flesh, but be controlled by the Spirit. We submit to you, we surrender to you, we die to self, and we live for you. We pray this in Yeshua's holy and gracious name. Amen.